Welcome, and thank you for listening to this audio sermon from Lighthouse Baptist Church. For more information about our ministry, go to lbccincy.com. And now for the message from Pastor Nathan Lang. Verses like 1 through 6. I'm going to read those again tonight. And uh, you know that, uh, uh, if you were here from last week, you know that uh, in that that particular text uh, are a few verses that, um, that the Calvinists absolutely love. Uh, they absolutely love these verses, and uh, the, the the problem is um, they are um, they are misreading them. They are not what they what they claim them to be, and uh, and so I'm going to refute it tonight. And so uh, we are we are the furthest thing from a Calvinist church. Uh, I believe in uh, that we are saved by grace through faith. Uh, there is not an ounce of that. Uh, you've heard me say this. Um, Anytime somebody claims to be a follower of something outside of Jesus, you're on, you're on shaky ground. Uh, when somebody says, uh, I am a, uh, a Calvinist, that scares me. And now I may hair lip a few of in here tonight when people say, I'm a Ruckmanite, that scares me. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, I am a Biblicist. I follow, I follow the teachings of the Bible and so uh, anytime, uh, I love what, uh, what somebody told me one time, they said, anytime you put your trust in man, they'll fail you, but God will never fail you. And so uh, we're going to cover them. I don't know that we're going to get through them all tonight. There's five, the five points to the tulip that they give, and we're gonna, I'm going to give those tonight. Uh, and my, my objective tonight, and potentially next week if, if we need more time, my objective is this. It's not to inform you just on what the Calvinists believe, my, my, my goal is to inform you on why that viewpoint is wrong. Scripturally, this is what the Bible says, and this is why this is what the Bible says. And so that is, that is my goal here, and, uh, and uh, I pray that I can do it justice tonight and potentially next week. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, you know, the reality is, reality is, um, you know, the Calvinists think that they're right, just like we know that we're right. And, uh, and so, um, you know, there's, there's, there are countless Calvinist churches all over Cincinnati. And uh, so you got to be, you just got to be careful. I tell you what, uh, uh, I've seen people, uh, you know, go visiting around churches and they don't even check on basic doctrine. Uh, if you want to know what we believe, you can go to our website before you even come here. You can look on there and you can see our doctrinal statement on our website that lays out what we believe. And so, uh, once again, I believe in the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. I do not believe that God uh, foreordained certain people to get saved and then he, that he damned uh, certain people to hell. Uh, I do not believe that one bit. There's a lot of things that come in question about this. My father-in-law and mother-in-law's in town and thankful to have him he, them here. And my father-in-law and I were just talking a little bit about uh, Calvinism last night. And uh, a couple of the things that we brought up that are, that are that just question in general is one, if, if Calvinism, if the doctrine were true, uh, then you would have to question the love of God. You would have to question it. 1 Corinthians 13. A second part is, why did God call for repentance uh, if, if this whole Calvinism thing's true? So there's so much, but we're going to get into it tonight. Let's look at Ephesians chapter number 1 and verse number 1. And the Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of, of our Lord, uh, yeah, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, 
And here, verses 4 through 6, there's, is, is our meat here. It says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would help me to be as clear as I could possibly be here tonight, Lord, as we, uh, as we uh, dissect and define the word of God here tonight. For it's in your name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, before, before we fully uh, launch into it, I want you to realize in here tonight uh, that I stress this over and over again. I want us to be a people that are informed. Uh, I don't want us to be a people uh, that just take what the preacher says and they never, they never read the Word of God for themselves. Uh, we're, not, we're not a Catholic church where you just take what I say and, you know, no, I want you to be like the Berean church. I want you to go home and search the Scriptures, whether these things are so. And, uh, and, and so, you, and one thing that I always stress is if you're going to take a doctrine and, and study it, you cannot just take one snippet of the verse and say, okay, this is what we're doing. And many times, I'm not saying all the time, but Many times, Calvinists will do that. They will take uh, a, a part of the verse, like in verse number four, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And then they stop there, and then they build their case off of that verse. That's only half of the verse. And so they read A, but they didn't read B and connect A and B of the verse together. Because the B of the verse is, is explaining what A set out to say. And so very, very important that we understand that, uh, you know, somebody will, will shoot a verse out, out at you maybe, and you say, man, you know what, I, I don't know how to refute that. Well, if they only give you part of the verse, here's what you got to do. You've got to, if you haven't already, you must take the Word of God in its context. In its context. You can't even just take one verse and say, okay, this is, this is a, no, read the context. Read the, uh, and, and remember, um, we believe that the King James Bible is, is inspired, it's infallible, uh, but remember, the chapter breaks are not inspired. The chapter numbers and the verse numbers are not inspired. So many times in the scripture, just because the verse stops at a chapter does not mean that the thought has stopped. Does that make sense? I, I, I don't want to insult intelligence, but I just make sure we're on the same page. But the term Calvinism is loosely used by some people who, who do not hold Calvin's teaching on predestination and do not understand exactly what Calvin taught. And um, Dr. Lorraine Bettner, uh, in, his, in his book, The Reformed uh, Doctrine of Predestination, says this, the Calvinistic system especially emphasizes five distinct doctrines. These are technically known as the five points of Calvinism, and they are the main pillars upon which the superstructure rests. And he further says the five points may be more easily remembered if they are associated with the word tulip, total depravity. And these are the points we're going to go through. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And these are the, the points of Calvinism, and uh, I've heard preachers say I'm a one-point Calvinist, and I've heard others say I'm a two- or a three-point Calvinist, and uh, I want us to look at all five of these uh, points of Calvinism as taught by John Calvin, uh, and then see what the Bible has to say about each point. And number one, right into it, if you take notes here tonight, uh, total inability, 
Total inability is, is, is the first one we're going to look at. And by total, total inability, uh, John Calvin meant that a lost sinner cannot come to Jesus Christ and trust Him as Savior unless he is foreordained to come to Christ. Did you get that? You don't have to write that down, but just, just so you know what, what, what we're talking about here. By total inability, he meant that no man has the ability to come to Christ unless... God overpowers him and gives him that ability. Uh, he will never come to Christ. The Bible teaches total depravity, and I believe in total depravity, uh, but that, me- that simply means that there is nothing good in a man to earn or deserve salvation. Total depravity. We have a depraved nature, and, uh, and, and you've heard me say this before, every day, Brother Pete, every day that, that depraved nature uh, has a default system, and every morning uh, when we wake up and those eyes open up, uh, we're at square one again. And we've got to make sure that we get our body into uh, our mind in subjection, our body into subjection, uh, because what's going to happen if not? We are capable of the most heinous crime on this planet. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17:9, "The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked." A preacher brought a wonderful sermon on the depravity of the human heart, and when he finished his message, someone came up to him and said, "I want you to know that I can't swallow that depraved heart that you preached about." The preacher smiled and said, you don't have to swallow it, it's already in you. And uh, while the Bible teaches the depravity of the human race, it nowhere teaches total inability. And you're going to find, as we go down through these terms here, uh, through the five tulip points, you're not going to find these terms anywhere in the Scripture. You're, you're not going to find them. And so, uh, so if that's not a red flag, I don't know what will, uh, what would be. Uh, but the Bible teaches that, t- that total depravity of the human race, and it, it doesn't teach that total inability. The Bible never hints that people are lost because they have no ability to come to Christ. The language of Jesus was this in John chapter 5 and verse 40, ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Notice, notice it is not a matter of whether or not you can come to Christ. It is a matter of whether or not you will come to Christ. Jesus looked over Jerusalem and wept and said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. That was in Matthew 23. Here again, notice he he did not say, how often would I have gathered you together, but you could not. No, he said, ye would not. It was a matter of whether they, uh, excuse me, it was not a matter of whether they could, it was a matter of whether they would. And I'm going to give you a lot of scripture here tonight. I would recommend, for the sake of time, uh, if you take notes, to just jot the reference down, because if you try to go back and forth, you're gonna, you, you might get flustered. But some of you are speed page turners, you might be able to do it. But Revelation 22 and verse 17, uh, the last invitation in the Bible says, uh, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. If it is true that no person has the, the ability to come to Christ, then why would Jesus say in John chapter 5 and verse 40, ye will not come to me? Why, why didn't he simply say, you cannot come to me? See, there's a big difference. The only thing that stands between the sinner and salvation is the sinner's will. The only thing that stands between the sinner and salvation is the sinner's will. God made every man a free moral agent, and God never burglarizes the human will. I'm so thankful that we have a free will to accept or reject. We are not a bunch of computerized robots. 
Uh, we are not a bunch of mechanical, mechanical things that God put here and, and winds us up and just lets us go for X amount of years and then decides whether or not he wants us. That's not how it works. D.L. Moody addressed a large group of skeptics. He said, I want, to take a, I want to talk about the word believe, the word receive, and the word take. When Mr. Moody had finished his sermon, he asked, now who will come and take Christ as Savior? One man stood and said, I can't. Mr. Moody wept and said, don't say I can't, say I won't. And the man said, then I won't. But another man said, I will. Then another said, I will. And another said, I will. Until scores of people had come to Christ and know Him as Savior. Some Calvinists use John chapter 6 and verse 44 in an effort to prove total inability. Here the Bible says in John chapter 6 and verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. But the Bible makes it plain in John chapter 12 and verse 32 that Christ will draw all men unto Himself. Here the Bible says, And I, if I be lifted up, uh, excuse me, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. You see, it's very simple. You look at one verse and uh, no man can come to the Father unless, unless he draws you. Okay, yes, that's true. But let's look at the rest of the story in, the, in, the, in, the, in John chapter number 12, verse 32. Uh, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. All men are drawn to Christ, but not all men will trust Christ. Every man will make his own decision to trust Christ or to reject him. The Bible makes it clear that the men, that men, uh, excuse me, that all men have light. John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, That was the true light which lighteth every man and cometh into the world. Romans chapter 1 says, uh, it indicates that every sinner has been called through the creation about him. In Romans 2 and verse 11, it, says, it indicates that sinners are called through their conscience even when they have not heard the word of God. So, so in the final analysis here, men go to hell not because of their inability to come to Christ, but because they will not come to Christ. Ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Ye will not, not ye cannot. The teaching that men, women, and children are totally unable to come to Christ and trust them as Savior is not a scriptural doctrine. The language itself is not scriptural. So I want you to see number two. Number two, unconditional election. Now, this is being recorded. You can get a CD of this. I know it's a lot of information to take in at once, but if you want to get a CD, we'll try to get it up on the, on the internet here in the near future. And you can go back to it. But unconditional election. By unconditional election, John Calvin meant that some are elected to heaven while others are elected to hell, and that this election is unconditional. It's, it's holy on God's part and without condition. By unconditional election, Calvin meant that God has already decided who will be saved and who will be lost. And the individual has absolutely nothing to do with it. He can only hope that God has elected him for heaven and not for hell. If you talk to any Calvinist who is, who is a true Calvinist, uh, ask them about, uh, about their souls and ask them about their children. I've, I've yet to meet a Calvinist who has said that they're not saved and going to heaven. I've yet to meet one. But you start asking them about their children, they're going to say, I'm not sure, I don't know. What about your spouse? I'm not sure. I don't know. What about your, your siblings? I don't know. What about the people in your church? We don't know. What a sad, sad state to be in. 
It's absolutely just, it's, it's horrible. Uh, this teaching is so obvi- obviously, it, it disagrees with the, the, the repeated invitations in the Bible to sinners to come to Christ and to be saved. So, so uh, I'll quote John Coven in his Institutes uh, uh, book. He said this, not all men, this was John Calvin, not all men are created with similar destiny, but eternal life is foreordained for some and eternal damnation for others. Every man, therefore, being created for one or the other of these ends, we say he is predestined either to life or to death. Wow. So far off. So far off. So Calvin teaches that it is God's own choice that some people are to be damned forever. He never intended to save them. He he foreordained them to go to hell. And when he offers salvation in the Bible, he does not offer it to those who were foreordained to be uh, damned to hell. It it, it is offered only to those who were foreordained to be saved. That is literally what this doctrine teaches. This teaching insists that we need not try to win men to Christ because men cannot be saved unless God has planned for them to be saved. And if God has planned for them to be eternally lost, they will not come to Christ. There's the Bible doctrine of God's foreknowledge, predestination, and election. Most knowledgeable Christians agree that God has His controlling hand on the affairs of men. They agree that according to the Bible, He selects individuals like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David as instruments to do certain things as He, as he planned. Most Christians agree that God may choose a nation particularly, that He did not choose Israel through uh, the, which He uh, gave the law, the prophets, and eventually through, his, uh, through whom the Savior Himself would come. And that there is a Bible doctrine that God foreknows all things. You know, the reality is that nothing has ever just occurred to God. God is all-knowing. God is all-knowing. And yes, uh, He uh, framed the world before the foundation of the world. But it's absolutely amazing. You know, there's a, there's a booklet entitled Tulip. And in that booklet, the writer attempts to prove the five points of Calvinism. And under, uh, under the point unconditional election, he quotes Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. That's where we're at. Look at, look at it. If, you are, if you're still in Ephesians, look at verse number 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. However, that is not the end of the verse. You remember what I said earlier about how you can't just take part A, you've got to take part B with it? The writer of that pamphlet, like most Calvinists, stopped in the middle of the verse. And the entire verse reads, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The verse says nothing about being chosen for heaven or hell. Do you see that in there? It says nothing about being chosen for heaven or hell. It says we are chosen that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You see how simple that is? But I tell you what, you take somebody who's, who's staunch Calvinist and they pull that one part out of there and as soon as we read, according to him, he has chosen us. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. Yes, but he's not talking about your eternal salvation or whether or not you're going to hell. Under the same point, unconditional election. The same author, he said in John chapter 15 and verse 16, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. In John chapter 15, verse 16. And again, like most Calvinists, stop in the middle of the verse. The entire verse reads, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, uh, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may 
give it you. The verse says nothing about being chosen once again for heaven or hell, does it? It says it's not there. You can look all day, but you're not going to find it. It says we are chosen to go and to bring forth fruit, which simply means that every Christian is chosen to be a soul winner. Well, I tell you what, that'll, that'll ruffle their feathers. The fruit of a Christian is what? Other Christians. Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. I can't tell you how many times I remember in Bible college getting in a literal debate with one of the other Bible college students there uh, over this verse. And he said, it does not have anything to do with soul winning. I said, well, I believe the Bible literally. And I believe when it says, he that winneth souls is wise, I believe it means exactly what it says. Nowhere does the Bible teach that God wills for some to go to heaven and wills others to go to hell. No, the Bible teaches that God would have all men to be saved. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says that He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For, uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and verse 4 says, who will, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth? It's very, very clear, and we're going to keep going on this here. Uh, the, the reality is, it is God's will for us to get saved, but He gives us a free will to decide it or to reject it. Those who teach that God would only have some to be saved uh, while He would have others to be lost are misrepresenting the Bible, misinterpreting the Bible. Uh, does, does God really predestinate some people to be saved and predestinate others to go to hell so, so that they have no free choice? Absolutely not. Nobody is predestined to be saved except as he chooses of his own free will to come to Christ and to trust him for salvation. And no one is predestined to go to hell except he chooses his own free will to reject Christ and to refuse uh, to trust Christ as his Savior. John chapter 3 and verse 36, this is what it says. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Nothing could be plainer. The man who goes to heaven goes because he comes to Jesus Christ and trusts him as Savior. And the man who goes to hell goes to, uh, so, does so uh, because he refuses to come to Christ to trust him as Savior. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It's, it's, it's black and white. It's, there's no middle ground there. There's, 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 there's no, well, what about that? No, where can you get anything else out of it? I want you to see number three. Limited atonement. Limited atonement. By limited atonement, Calvin meant that Christ died only for the elect and for those he planned and ordained to go to heaven. This, this is a fun one because I, I mean, without even, I mean, close your eyes and, and just picture this, that Christ only died for those who he predetermined, predestined to go to heaven. That's what they're saying. Can I tell you in here today that if Christ, if there were one soul on this earth, that Christ would have still came. He did not die for those he planned and ordained to go to hell. Again, I say uh, that language is not in the Bible and the doctrine wholly contradicts many, many plain scriptures. For instance, for instance, if you want to just jot the reference and look at them later, 1 John 2.2, 2, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole 
world. I don't get anywhere in there where he says for this group of people. The sins of the whole world. How many is the whole world? Oh, all. <laughs> the teaching of Calvinism on limited atonement contradicts the, the statement of Scripture in 1 Timothy. Write it down. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 5 and 6 says, The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. For all. There, there's, no limited, there's no limited addition. There's no limited atonement when it comes to Christ dying for us. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the Savior of the world. John chapter 4 and verse 42, it says, And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him, our, we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. John chapter 4 and verse 42. And then in 1 John... 4 and verse 14. 1 John 4 and verse 14. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Scriptures make it plain that Jesus came to save the world. John chapter 3 and verse 17. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him, the world through Him might be saved. No man will ever look at Jesus Christ and say, you didn't want to be my Savior. Jesus wants to be our, the Savior of all men. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, specifically of those that believe. Especially those of who believe. The Bible teaches that Christ bore the sins of all people. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6 says, All, turn, I want you to turn to Isaiah 53 with me. I, I, need you to, I, need you to, I need you to see this. I need you to see this. <clears throat> Once again, we're talking about limited atonement. I'm going to have you, if you mark in your Bibles, if you don't, that's okay. If you mark in your Bibles, I'm going to have you underline two words or circle two words, whatever you prefer. Isaiah 53 and verse number six. It says, all, I want you to circle or underline that word all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want you to underline underline or circle that second word all so in the first the first and the last word of the of the text all all circle them or underline them because we're going to be back we're going to talk about them we're going to come back to them again in a little bit but there are two alls in this verse the first all speaks of the universal fact of sin all we like sheep have gone astray the second all speaks of universal atonement and the lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all the all in the first part of isaiah covers uh, if all we went astray, then the iniquities of all were laid on Christ. Not, not only did he, did he bear the sins of us all, but the Bible plainly teaches that he died for the whole world. And once again, we're going to come back to the, that Isaiah in, in just a few moments, so keep your finger there. Uh, but in, in John chapter 2 and verse 2, it says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. If that isn't plain enough, the Bible says his death was for every man. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, But we uh, see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, 
angels for the suffering uh, of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Every man. Every man. Nothing could be plainer than the fact that Jesus Christ died for every man. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. In Romans 8.32 it says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? John 3.16 is often referred to as the heart of the Bible. It's been called the Bible in miniature. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died for the whole world. He suffered hell for every man who has ever lived or ever will live and no man will look out of hell and say, I wanted to be saved and Jesus did not die for me. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Some argue that if Jesus died for the whole world, the whole world would be saved. No. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross was sufficient for all, but it is efficient only to those who believe and trust in Him. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross made it possible for every man everywhere to be saved, but only those who believe that He died uh, and paid for their sin debt uh, and trust in Him for their salvation will be saved. Uh, if I could quote John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son of God hath everlasting life. No one is saved until he recognizes uh, that he's lost. That's why we take them through the, the, uh, the Romans road. They believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for their sin debt and trust in Him completely for salvation. Uh, the atonement is not limited. It is as universal as sin. Romans 5.20 says, but, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Isaiah 53, 6 states, All we, and here we are, we're coming back to it, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. There was a famous English teacher, excuse me, a famous, famous English preacher who spoke in an English town and then rushed to catch his train for London, and a sinner who had heard him preach felt that he must immediately settle the matter of salvation. So he followed the preacher to the train. Just as the train pulled into the station, he took hold of the preacher's lapel and said, I want to be saved. Tell me how. The minister said, I must catch this train, uh, last train to London. Do you have a Bible? Yes, I have one at home, said the anxious inquirer. Then go home and find Isaiah 53, 6. That's where you're at in your Bible right now. Read it carefully. Go in, uh, go in at the first all and come out at the last all and you will be saved. Did you get that? Go in at the first all and come out at the last all and be saved. Let me explain. The preacher uh, uh, rushed away and an anxious sinner was left alone. He went back to his home and opening his Bible, he turned to Isaiah 53, 6. What did the preacher mean, he wondered? Go in at the first all and come out at the last all and you will be saved. He found the verse and read it carefully. All we like sheep have gone astray. Well, he thought to himself, I can certainly go in at the first all. I have gone astray. I am a poor lost sinner. Then he read the last part of the verse. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Is it coming to you yet? 
He said to himself, if I come out at the last all, I must believe that all my sins were laid on Christ and that he took my place and paid for my sins. And if I rely upon that, I will be saved. That's what the preacher meant. He then trusted Christ and was saved. Go in at the first all and come out at the last all. I want you to see number four, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. The fourth point of Calvinism is irresistible grace. By irresistible grace, John Calvin meant that God simply forces people to be saved. You don't have a word. You don't have a saying in it. There's, you, there's, it has nothing to do with you. Has everything to do with what God wants. No, you have no say in it at all. God elected some to be saved, and he and, uh, he let Jesus die for that elect group. And now, by irresistible grace, he forces those he elected and those Jesus Christ died for to be saved. The truth of the matter is, there is no such thing as irresistible grace. Nowhere in the Bible does the word irresistible appear before the word grace. That terminology is simply not in the Bible. Uh, It is the philosophy of John Calvin, not a Bible doctrine. And the word irresistible doesn't even sound right in front of the word grace. Can I add to you in here tonight that I have met a lot of Calvinists. I I know a few Calvinists, a few Calvinists I'm friends with. But boy, I tell you what, we draw the line doctrinally when we get into discussions. But I've yet, and I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but I've yet to meet a Calvinist who became a Calvinist by simply opening up this book and reading it cover to cover, and he came up with this doctrine. I've yet to find one. Every Calvinist I know and have ever met was given a book going back to John Calvin, and that is where they rooted their faith in because of that teaching, not because of opening up this book and coming to that conclusion. Truth of the matter is, uh, it's not there. Grace means God's unmerited favor. Somebody said, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is an attitude, not a power. If Calvin had had talked about the irresistible drawing of uh, the power of God, it would have made more sense. But instead, he represents grace as the irresistible act of God compelling a man to be saved who does not want to be saved so that a man had no choice in the matter at all except, as God forcibly puts it, that, that choice on him. Calvinism teaches that man has no part in salvation and cannot possibly cooperate with God in the matter. Does the Bible say anything about irresistible grace? Absolutely not. The scriptures show that men do resist and reject God, though. Proverbs 29.1 says, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Notice the word often in this verse. If God only gave the op- one opportunity to be saved, then man could not complain. But here the Bible says, he that being often reproved. This means that man was reproved over and over again. Not only was, was he reproved many times, but he was reproved often. But the Bible says, he hardeneth his neck and shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. That, that certainly doesn't sound like irresistible grace to me. The Bible teaches that a man can be reproved over and over again that he can harden his neck against God and as a result will be destroyed without remedy. Proverbs 1, chapter chapter 1 and verse 24 says, Because I have called and ye refused, 
I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. Here the Bible plainly says, I have called and ye have refused. I have stretched out my hand and ye have uh, no man regarded, but ye have said at not my, at all my counsel and with none of my reproof. That doesn't sound like irresistible grace to me. So either there's a contradiction in Calvin's doctrine or there's a contradiction in the Bible. I don't know about you, but I'm going to go with a contradiction on Calvin's part. Did you know, and I'm not, this, isn't, this isn't a part what I'm teaching here tonight, uh, but if you look at Mormonism, Mormon, Mormons are taught, people don't, you remember years ago, I remember back in the late 90s, they, used to, they started putting all these commercials out there. And can I say that it was one of the most genius campaigns of any church in history. They started putting on these, and all you have to do is call their number, and they will give you the Book of Mormon. And they got this lady standing on this hillside, this cliff, and there's this, I mean, this beautiful music playing, and she's just, you know, it's all serenity. And all you got to do is call this number, and we will hand deliver you a Book of Mormon. How genius is that? You call us, and we're going to come to your house and initiate the Bible study. I mean, you have to tell me, that whoever marketed that thing, then that was genius. The Mormons believe the Bible until it contradicts with the Book of Mormon and then the Book of Mormon is always right. Now, they're not going to tell you that on that commercial, are they? They're not going to tell you at first glance. They're not going to tell you that until you get in deep with them. That's a sad thing. What am I trying to say? I'm not trying to beat on, on any necessary religion. What I'm trying to say is there's no book that trumps the Bible. The Bible is God's holy word. And anytime somebody tries to say, well, this book says, or that book says, whoa, 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 back up. You're on dangerous ground. Dangerous ground. In Acts chapter 7, we find Stephen preaching. He says in verse 51, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. To these Jewish leaders, Stephen said, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Once again, that was Acts chapter 7. So here were people, some of whom had seen Jesus and heard him preach. Others who had heard Peter at Pentecost. Others who had heard Stephen and the Holy Spirit filled men preaching with great power. And what, what had they done? They were stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears. That is, they were stubborn and rebellious against God. But the Bible plainly says they resisted the Holy Ghost. Notice the words of Stephen in verse 51. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so did ye. Can I say that when I, I was so under conviction as a 12-year-old boy to get saved at the Open Door Baptist Church, I was so under conviction and week after week after week I resisted. I sat back there every invitation. I clamped down on that old wooden pew and I wouldn't go forward. I knew I was lost. I knew the gospel. I knew that Jesus loved me, died for me, rose again three days later. I knew it. But week after week for several months, every week, I would hold on to that pew and I'd say, next week, Lord, next week, Lord, I was resisting. Until finally I'd had enough and I said, Lord, I'm, I'm tired of fighting it. I want you as just as you are if you'll take me just as I am. The Bible, in, in Acts 7.51, here the Bible teaches that not only were these Jewish leaders resisting the Holy Ghost, but 
that their fathers before them had also resisted the Holy Ghost. Stephen says uh, that all the way back from Abraham through the history of the Jewish nation down to the time of Christ, unconverted Jews had resisted the Holy Spirit. There's absolutely no such thing as can't help it religion. God doesn't just force men to be saved with so-called irresistible grace. God offers salvation to all men. Titus 1.11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. But man must make his own choice to receive or reject Christ. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are uh, sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Here again, the Bible clearly indicates that God would have gathered them together as, his, as, he gathers, as a hen gathers her chickens, but they would not. Key there, but they would not. That certainly shows that they could reject or resist Christ. They would not. I would, but he would not, does not fit in the teaching of irresistible grace. People can resist the Holy Spirit. I want you to see number five. Looks like we're going to finish it tonight. I'm going to try. Perseverance of the saints. The Bible teaches, and I believe in the eternal security of, born again, of the born-again believer. The man who has trusted Jesus Christ has, has everlasting life and will never perish. But the eternal security of the believer does not depend on his perseverance. Perseverance of the saints. I do not know a single Bible verse that says anything about the saints persevering. Can anybody name me one? But there are several Bible verses that mention the fact that the saints have been preserved Perseverance is one thing. Preservation is another. The saints do not persevere. They are preserved. Persevere means to keep at it. If you're wondering what that means. Persevere means to keep at it. The Bible says in Jude 1, uh, that Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of months ago, uh, uh, my wife, she went, we were at Jungle Gyms, and, uh, and we went, I love Jungle Gyms. It's just, it's, it, it, we're, just, we're just a simple family. That's like an outing for my family. Like our kids love Jungle Gyms, walking around and looking at the, all, all the stuff. Uh, but my wife picked me up a, a, a jar of strawberry preserves. It was a mixture of different, uh, different uh, strawberry or different berries, actually. Uh, but I just say it's strawberry preserves. And uh, I, I don't know how long those strawberries have been in that jar, uh, but the jar had been sealed some time ago. And the strawberries were preserved. When I, when I took out the preserves and ate, ate them on a piece of bread, uh, they were as good as they were the day they were placed in the jar. Are you with me? But wait a minute, the strawberries had nothing to do with it. They were not fresh and good because they had persevered. They were good and fresh because they had been preserved. The Bible makes it plain that the believer is kept. He does not keep himself. 1 Peter chapter 4 says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled 
and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The Bible says in John chapter 10 and verse 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now that doesn't sound like perseverance of the sheep or the saints to me. Here the sheep are in the Father's hand and they are safe uh, not because they persevere but because they are in the Father's hand. So I disagree with all five points of Calvinism as John Calvin taught it. It's absolutely incredible. And I know there's no way for you to get everything down uh, that I said tonight. I know it's a lot but if you, if you walk, I encourage you to get, get the CD, listen to it. But here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. <clears throat> when it comes to this doctrine, there is so much evidence. There's so much evidence. And you, if you ever talk to someone who's Calvinist, and, 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 and you may run into somebody who, who believes that, um, you, don't, you don't have to be mean to them but be studied up. Can I say there's no shame in going back and studying? There's, there's doctrines where I'll, I'll run into somebody out door knocking and, and they'll believe one religion and, I'll, and I'm not really brushed up on, on that particular religion and, and, uh, uh, you know, and I'll do my best to use what scripture I know to, to do that. Sometimes I got to say, you know what, I don't have an answer to that particular question, but I'll come back and I'll have one for you. Hey, there's no shame in that. There's no shame in that. Um, the reality is I believe that <coughs> Adam and Eve we're not forced into eating that fruit. I believe that they made a choice. Now, why did God, you know, there's so many questions you can, you can bring up there. Why did God, you know, knowing that they were going to do that, why did God allow that? Why did he allow them to eat of that fruit? And why did he create them knowing uh, on and on? Hey, you know what? There's a lot of questions we just truly don't have the answer to. We're gonna, we'll see when we get to heaven. But I know and believe it with all my heart that God didn't look down and say, all right, now, Nathan, okay, you're going to get saved and uh, in the future. And let's see, uh, Mr. Jackson, no, you're not going to get saved. And you, you're going to, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Okay, yeah, you're going to go. I, I don't believe it was that case. I believe we have a free will to accept Jesus Christ or reject Jesus Christ. And that's all that I have for today. We're going to come back next week. We're gonna... Thank you for listening to this audio sermon from Lighthouse Baptist Church. For more information about our ministry, go to lbccincy.com.